Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob. And I'm Joe. And today we are going to unscramble the cable signal and tune into some Tales from the Crypt. That's right. Uh, yeah, we have, we have another slice of 90s genre cinema for you this week, except this one's far cheaper than Free Jack. Um, <laughs> I think ultimately a, a more enjoyable film, uh, but it is, of course, the, the initial cinematic spinoff of HBO's Tales from the Crypt. It is Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight from, what, 1995? That sounds right. Yeah. It looks very mid-90s. Uh, so th- I guess this one and last week's are a little bit more mainstream than than we usually go. Yeah, yeah, they're they're more mainstream. But Demon Knight is also one. I mean, Free Jack is definitely a film that that did not perform to expectation and was right. kind of just thrown out there and died and was forgotten by many. Uh, Demon Knight is a film that I think also is. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, maybe a little under underappreciated though. It certainly has its following, and oh yeah, and uh, you know continues to be popular to this day. But you don't you don't hear it championed that often as being like a great uh, piece of horror or horror comedy from the nineties. I guess it's hard to argue that it's great, but it is really fun. This is a really fun R-rated frisky piece of horror comedy. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's essentially a siege movie, so the the, the basic uh-huh. structure is pretty uh, pretty nailed down. You know, like you're gonna have characters go somewhere, they're gonna hold up there, and then things are gonna try and get in and get them. It's the basic uh, Night of the Living Dead scenario. Yeah, it's Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, that that kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's just jump right into the elevator pitch on this one. Just now, this is the elevator pitch for the basic movie itself. The unholy demon lords have six of the seven keys they need to drag the universe back into darkness. And the only thing standing in their way on planet Earth for that last key is one immortal drifter and a (laughs) ragtag bunch of losers in a rundown hotel in the middle of the desert. Uh Uh-huh. In a place called Wormwood, New Mexico. I looked it up. Not a real place. It sounds nice and biblical, though, which is good because there's a lot of biblical... uh, uh, nonsense going on in this particular movie. <laughs> yeah, and this movie is just jammed with drifters. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all it's basically all drifters. I mean, and I've yeah. I've I've actually seen it discussed in the sense that it's like the meek shall inherit the earth, and this is the meek. These are uh-huh. all the sorts of losers that Jesus Christ Himself would have hung out with in life. Maybe not Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, he's not that meek, <laughs> but he's a scumbag in this. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, "Hey, you sit down to eat with the sinners and the tax collectors, and even with Thomas Hayden Church." <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and have just a little bit of the trailer audio here, and there's probably going to be a little crypt keeper in there. Universal Pictures is proud to present the motion picture directing debut of one of America's most talented and respected artists. Cut! 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 Oh, hello, kitties. So glad you could join me. Your pal, the Crypt Keeper, has gone Hollywood in a big way. I'm directing my first feature film. Care for a little shriek preview? (coughs) For my big screen premiere, I wanted lots of suspense. Special effects. Sex. Violence. 
teeth into. Hi, frights! Camera! Action! If you think Demon Knight is too gross and yucky... Wow! Thank you! <laughs> Alright, so yeah, basically the idea here with the whole Tales from the Crypt thing is, you know, Tales from the Crypt was a was like the show on HBO back in the day. And we've talked yeah. about it on, on the show before here uh, on like... Um, some of our horror anthology specials around Halloween. You know, it's basically it's based on the old uh, uh, horror comics, and mm-hmm. each ep- each little story in the horror comic would be about some horrible person getting their comeuppance. And right. so each episode of Tales from the Crypt generally revolves around that as well. Yeah, uh, to me, the opening theme music of Tales from the Crypt, I think it's composed by Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like the 90s. And it sounds like being a kid in the 90s trying to watch stuff that you're not allowed to watch absolutely it's like it's the sound of i think we may have made this comparison before but it's the sound of a scrambled cable channel that you don't get that shows r-rated depravity all night and every day yeah yeah it, it really does um and i guess one of the interesting things about this is that you can imagine the studios came and there or some folks behind the scenes were like hey this show's really successful we should do a movie the thing is tales from the crypt doesn't really lend itself well to that kind of format unless you're going to do an anthology film with just a bunch of little stories um, mm-hmm. much like the original Tales from the Crypt uh, film the 1972 uh, anthology picture from Amicus oh I I don't think I even knew that existed yeah uh, it has the Crypt Keeper in it but the Crypt Keeper is played by Sir Ralph Richardson in like a hood <laughs> That's nice. Um, yeah, but it, so as you mentioned, the the standard format of a Tales from the Crypt episode, uh, and you know, there's some variation, but the most common format is that uh, you have basically a sleazy salad of gratuitous gore and nudity in which a morally bankrupt person does something evil. They think they're going to get away with it, and then they get their just desserts via the the vengeful wrath of a monster, demon, ancient curse, haunted scarecrow chainsaw freak or whatever yeah it's in a way it's it's like horror in a very simple form fulfilling a societal need you know Uh we need the villains in our world in our life to suffer and these little stories provide that suffering along with some you know gratuitous uh violence maybe a little nudity uh Mm -hmm. and and maybe a few laughs as well a lot of gallows humor finds its way into these episodes and a lot of puns. I mean, the Crypt Keeper loves to make death-related puns. That's right, because, of course, the big thing about the the HBO series is hosted by the Crypt Keeper, this wonderful puppetry creation of a, of a reanimated corpse that just gleefully uh, <laughs> uh, takes you on this journey uh, to hear all of these tales. You know who the Crypt Keeper is? It's the preserved remains of Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about that this time. I mean, like, God, that that rotten-looking head, it's almost perfectly the Crypt Keeper. Well, let's start with the Crypt Keeper, talking about people involved in this one. Um, The Crypt Keeper's voice is, of course, John Kasser, uh, born in 1957. Uh, He's a longtime actor and voice actor, but he's most well-known as the voice of the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt on HBO from 89 through 96, as well as the cartoon Tales from the Crypt Keeper, 1993 through 1999. Three uh, three Tales from the Crypt movies. We'll get 
uh, touch on that in a bit. But basically, uh-huh. just um, with the Crypt Keeper, we have a great voice coming together with an amazing puppet, at least for most appearances. And all mm-hmm. of this based on one of the EC Comics horror hosts. You know, other hosts included things like the Vault Keeper and the Old Witch. Uh, but those were just in the comic, right? They were not on, on the TV series? I don't think so. Though occasionally yeah. the Crypt Keeper has a guest that's not a corpse uh, in mm-hmm. those little segments. Um, uh, and, and we'll touch on some of those examples as we go here. But of course, in this movie, uh, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, uh, the Crypt Keeper is just there to set things up to say, hey, we get, here it is for you, a movie. Um, and the movie itself is uh, pretty self-contained. Uh, it, it has a few nods to Tales from the, the Crypt within it, uh, but, uh, but, but still, you could watch it on, in an, on, it, on its own without the intro or the outro, and you'd get it. So I guess the first person we should talk about is the director. Uh, this was directed by Ernest Dickerson. Dickerson was born in 1951, and he was a classmate of Spike Lee at the uh, Tisch School of the Arts. And mm-hmm. so he went on to work as a frequent collaborator uh, with Spike Lee uh, as a cinematographer on various Spike Lee joints, including School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and Malcolm X. He also worked as cinematographer on films from John Salis, uh, the film Brother from Another Planet, and Jonathan Demme. And more recently, you might have noticed his name as a director on a number of TV projects, including multiple episodes of The Walking Dead, Treme, The Wire. He seems like one of those TV directors that just works all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's also done a lot of work in the horror genre. He was a he was cinematographer on the TV series Tales from the Dark Side, an anthology series. And while Demon Knight was his first horror or sci-fi film as a director, he went on to direct 1998's Future Sport, which looks interesting, and mm-hmm. the 2001 Snoop Dogg ghost movie Bones, <laughs> which I haven't seen, but I was reading a little about and it. It seems like it has its following, so maybe it's worth oh, checking yeah? out. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, Snoop is always uh, entertaining. Yeah. So, so Demon Knight, though, follows up on Dickerson's 1992 film Juice, which starred Tupac Shakur, uh, and also the exquisite uh, 1994 <laughs> film Surviving the Game. Do you remember this one, Joe? <laughs> of course I do. Surviving the, I, I don't think Surviving the Game is as good as Demon Knight, uh, as comparing uh, Dickerson's violent thrillers here. Surviving, but one thing that is great about Surviving the Game, basically it's an adaptation of uh, the short story The Most Dangerous Game about a group about like a a rich guy on an island who hunts human beings for sport uh this adapts that to the modern world and it's a movie about a character named mason played by ice t who is uh like homeless and depressed and he gets offered a job by a guy who he meets somewhere i think maybe at a like a like a a place where uh, they're feeding the homeless and he gets recruited for this job to be a wilderness guide for a bunch of rich dudes Mm -hmm. played by people like rutger howard uh, Charles S. Dutton, Gary Busey, F. Murray Abraham, mm-hmm. John C. McGinley. It is a real powerhouse cast. Like ev- every person who could have played like, you know, the cocaine king of the week in an 80s crime movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're one of these one of the party of the hunters in this movie. And then, of course, the twist is once they get out in the woods, they tell Ice-T, OK, well, we're going to hunt you now. But Ice-T outsmarts them all. Yeah. So I remember catching this one on cable, I think, and uh, and yeah. I remember finding it irresistible. I was just drawn right yeah. into it. Yeah, and I, I, I got to say, Ice-T has a very weird charm in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's hard to describe exactly what it is, uh, but he... <laughs> He plays a he plays a very rude and sympathetic protagonist as he's like chugging along through the forest while they're chasing him on ATVs. 
Yeah. So, um, so it's some some notable films uh, from Dickerson there. Now, coming back to Demon Knight, uh, there's a there's an excellent Shout Factory slash Scream Factory uh, Blu-ray of this film that came out, and that's that's what I, I watched uh, for this. But uh, it also includes some uh, some really cool features, including interviews with uh, Dickerson, among others. And one of the things that came out of it, aside from him just being really chill and apparently easy to work with um, and open to some of the loonier ideas that the actors brought to the table, um, mm-hmm. he was also a major force behind having a, a more diverse cast on this film, including the casting of uh, African-American actors Jada Pinkett, CCH Pounder, and Mark David uh, Kinnerly, who plays a very small part at, uh, towards the end, uh, but also presumably presumably First Nations actor Gary Farmer, who we'll touch on here in a bit. And it's worth noticing that even our secondary minority characters in this film survive quite far into the picture. Right. Uh, the cliche long being that uh, in many horror movies, it is common for the cast to be all white except for one black character and the black guy dies first. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it seems that having, having a black director at the, at the front of this thing uh, really helped out. In that regard, for instance, the main character, the character that Jada Pinkett uh, plays, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith plays in this, um, uh, like that was, I think the studio wanted, um, I forget which actor, but they they wanted a, a white female actor for the role. Mm. Um, and he was, he insisted on this. So, uh, and I think it's a better film for it. Yeah. Now, the screenwriters on this were Ethan Reif, Cyrus Voris. Uh, and Mark Bishop. So th- this trio, they had written a post-apocalyptic movie called Escape from Safe Haven in 1988, and that was directed by Bishop. And Bishop didn't didn't seem to go on to do much else uh, in film, but Rife and Voris went on to do quite a lot, including 2008's Kung Fu Panda. Uh, they, they, uh, they wrote that, uh, and you'll find their names attached to anything involving Kung Fu Panda. Uh, mm-hmm. They also wrote 2010's Robin Hood. That's the Ridley Scott version starring Russell Crowe. Mm. I didn't Never see it. Never saw that. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and uh, Demon Knight was apparently a spec script that they had uh, out there, and, and people were you know excited about it. And it got picked up by this Tales from the Crypt trilogy idea. Like they were the basic idea was like let's do three Tales from the Crypt films. We'll find the screenplays, and we'll um, we'll just you know put some Crypt Keeper at the beginning, some Crypt Keeper at the end, and you got yourself a franchise. Now, unfortunately, being a feature film, instead of being made for TV, it does not have commercial breaks for the Crypt Keeper to come in in the middle of the movie and comment about what's currently going on in the story. Mm -hmm. He's just at the beginning and the end. Uh, But even with uh, only the beginning and the end brackets, the the Crypt Keeper is a very welcome presence. Yes. Now, apparently, I was was watching uh, some of the the making of it. Apparently, there was some push and pull on the idea of, like, what the the movie itself was going to be. The the screenwriters really thought this is more of a hero movie. This is about a hero's journey, et cetera. And then (laughs) everyone else was like, well, but it's a monster movie. It needs to be a monster Uh. movie. It's Tales from the Crypt. And then, you know, ultimately, it goes back to what we said earlier. Like, this is not a a comeuppance film. It's not a a film about a horrible person getting their comeuppance. It ends up really being more of a hero's journey kind of a story with monsters, but Mm -hmm. with the Tales from the Crypt branding. But also, I mean, I think Dickerson handles it exactly right in that it is not overly serious in any way. Like, it Mm -hmm. is a very loose, fun, frisky movie that does not ever stop to take itself too seriously. And the scenes that do get kind of serious addressing, like, the, you know, the recurring hero motif or whatever, those are are brief enough to be kind of welcome, and then it quickly gets back to goofy, gory jokes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start talking about some of these heroes. Um, again, Jada Pinkett, uh, who would 
become Jada Pinkett Smith uh, later on. She plays our hero, and this is uh, Jerry Jerry Line Jerry Lynn. Geraldine. Geraldine. It it it's one of those where I got prepared for it to be pronounced a certain way, and uh, then it was not in the film. Well, actually, I think different characters in the movie pronounce her name different, and you might say, "Hey, that's not consistent." But then, hey, have you have you ever known somebody whose name, as written, could be pronounced different ways? People pronounce it different ways. Yeah, but we're going <laughs> with Geraldine. Geraldine. Okay, Geraldine. Okay. I'm going to try and be consistent. I may just say Jada Pinkett. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, yep, she's in this. Uh, She had not yet married Will Smith, uh, but she was on the rise here. She was coming off of the Hughes Brothers' Menace to Society, as well as Jason's Lyric, and she would uh, apparently go on to, like, really break out uh, in 1996's The Nutty Professor. Then she was in Mm -hmm. Scream 2, The Matrix sequels, just to name a few. I saw that she's going to be in the upcoming new Matrix movie, so I, I forget who her character is, but whoever she is, she must survive the third film. Yeah. Now, um, let's see, this is not a hero. This is our main antagonist in the film, mm-hmm. but we have Billy Zane as the collector. Billy Zane is just wonderful in this movie. He is. He's, I mean, Zane has a very punchable face in a lot of roles, and mm-hmm. oh, he's so punchable in this. He's, he, he just, he hams it up so much. Like, he's great mm-hmm. at playing like a smug, privileged uh, SOB in, in so many other films. I mean, especially Titanic right. comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's he's like a, a Looney Tunes character in this, in all the right ways, it, with the, in the appropriate um, in the appropriate ways. He is just like a, a cartoon character. Oh well, you included a detail uh, that he, I think, revealed in one of the making of features. You said mm-hmm. you were watching that once. You, once I read it, I was like, oh my god, that's absolutely right. The one about Aladdin. Yes, yeah. He he says that he approached the role like he was uh, playing uh, the genie from Aladdin, except evil. And then you see it in everything. It's exactly what he's doing. He's almost Robin Williams, Mm -hmm. but a little bit less manic and more smooth, but smooth in a very sinister and silly way. He he, he's perfect in this role. Yeah, this is this is apparently one of his favorite roles that he did. And yeah, he really shines in it. Um, You know, no matter what your opinion is of of Zane in general, you know, he's he's been in some real some real stinkers for sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, this has just the right amount of Billy Zane. And uh, oh, and this was fun, too. This was revealed on one of the featurettes. This was apparently Zane's first film without a hairpiece. Uh, huh. So, yeah, apparently he came in to meet Dickerson and he brought in like a little uh, suitcase and he opened it up uh, and he was completely bald, uh, you know, and uh, shaved down. And he showed him the hair pieces. He's like, which one do you want me to wear for the film? And Dickerson's <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like what you've got going on there. And so that's what they went with. Which is bald, right? Which is Billy bald, Zane's. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, his bald head is exquisite. And I wonder if that in- inspired uh, the scenes in the film where he's carrying around a suitcase, or maybe that was part of the script anyway. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he so we should say that in the movie, we said he's the villain, but he is the titular demon knight. He is a uh, a hell beast who's a kind of uh, smooth-talking prince of the infernal realms who wants to do some kind of apocalyptic magic, and it involves him frequently getting out a suitcase and asking people to put a thing inside it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he does have a suitcase around. So presumably a very similar suitcase that uh, that held his many different hairs. Now, you've got a lot of films listed as Billy Zane credits that almost none of which I had any idea Billy Zane was in. Oh, yeah. He was in 1985's Back to the Future. I didn't know that. He was in 1986's Critters, uh, which uh, I had no clue on that one. 
Yeah, no idea. Um, I, I guess he really stood out. I guess one of the early roles where he really stood out would be the, the 1989 thriller Dead Calm alongside mm-hmm. Sam Neill and Nicole Kidman. And he's, he's quite good in that. I've never seen it. Oh, it's good. It's a re- really good, solid thriller. Uh-huh. Is that the one where he plays like a he's like a an evil guy on a boat? Yep. Yeah, it's a thriller. <laughs> that's on probably a boat. oversimplifying it, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't seen it in forever, but I remember it as being quite good. Um, it's like you take the end of Cape Fear and make it a whole movie. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, Zane, of course, did a, a lot of TV work as well. He was on Twin Peaks. Um, he was in the film Tombstone, and of course, we can't forget his starring role in 1996's The Phantom. Um, because there was that whole period in the 90s when Hollywood decided that old-timey characters like Dick Tracy and The Shadow were the next big thing. Uh-huh. And well, uh, That was a weird time. I kind of... Uh, wait, so was the was the Phantom an old property that was being revived, or was it a new property in the style of the old adventure serials? No, the Phantom was an old character, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know the shadow was. Didn't Alec Baldwin play the shadow in the, uh, the revival yeah. there? Yeah, that one. I do not remember that one as being good, but it had Alec Baldwin, no. and it was directed by Russell McKay. So oh. I'm sure if I were to watch it again, I would I would find some some lovable weird things in it. But I don't know. Uh, there, there are other McKay films I would rather see. <laughs> now I know you have unspeakable love for Dick Tracy. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's unspeakable love because I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but uh-huh. it, it was one that was not as good as anticipated perhaps, but it had such weird mobsters in it. Like yes. all the mobsters, you know, in a way they're, they're trying to create the kind of the, the like rough caricatures of the, of the, of the old comic. And in doing so, they created these monstrous mutant gangsters that were mm-hmm. just, you know, irresistible and also just so weird like it's so weird that the movie's filled with them wasn't there one called little face who had a huge head with a little face in the middle of it yeah yeah there was flat top and i think there was one called no face who didn't have a face there's one called (laughs) the brow with just this enormous grotesque brow like Uh just tons of those type characters most of which they did nothing with most of them are just i think like they have like a, a good dozen of them that they kill in one scene just in passing yeah, they just have like the Star Wars cantina scene, but it's mutant mobsters. Yeah. So I feel like that kind of ruined me for traditional gangster films to a certain extent, because you're like, oh, well, you know, The Godfather's good, but it didn't have any mutants in it. Oh, I like The Godfather. The, God, no, the Godfather's <laughs> good, but yeah. But I'd like to see mutant gangsters come back. I, I, th- I feel like that's the that's the takeaway from Dick Tracy. I agree. A little bit more boiling acid version of The Godfather. All right. We said that there was an immortal drifter in this film, and <laughs> yeah. there is the character Breaker, played by the the always ex- excellent William Sadler. Oh, man. William Sadler, he's got one of those faces, right, that's just he, – he has an inherently evil-looking face, which makes me assume that in reality he must be a nice guy <laughs> uh, because I, I recall there being a, a, a bit about this in the novel Around the World in 80 Days, which I, I haven't read since I was a kid. But I remember there's a part where a police detective is talking about how people who have criminal-looking faces have no choice but to be honest because you know everybody looks at them and suspects 
a criminal. It's only people who look very trustworthy who can really get away with great crime. <laughs> uh, so I don't know for sure. But but yeah, Sadler, he just has that face where he looks like a devil person. And uh, th- there are other people like this who just kind of naturally look like a cartoon devil, like Malcolm McDowell kind of looks like a cartoon mm-hmm. devil. Uh, there, there's a prosperity gospel TV preacher named Mike Murdoch who just looks like a cartoon demon. <laughs> well, uh, Sadler, yeah, he definitely has that sort of face. Uh, he's played a fairly fairly diverse amount of roles. Um, I don't know. He does tend to sort of play your rougher characters. He's, he's played villains of, of differing varieties. Like he's definitely played the, the, the suit wearing villain, but he's also played the, you know, the sort of, um, uh, you know, dirt kicker kind of a villain as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, he's, he might be best known uh, for his role as the seventh seal inspired death in the Bill and Ted movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Reaper. Yeah. They Melvin him. Yep. And uh, and also interestingly enough, his rendition of that character shows up on Tales from the Crypt at one point uh, in the the Crypt Keeper sequence, where he's like playing a game of chess with the Crypt Keeper or something. But uh, he was in Shawshank Redemption. He was in the second Die Hard movie. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy. He's like the the nude martial arts colonel. Remember, he's in the hotel room doing like naked yoga or something. <laughs> and then he, I think, at some point, he like punches out a TV screen. <laughs> um. He uh, he was on Tales from the Crypt. He appeared in uh, in what I believe was the pilot episode, "The Man Who Was Death," and he also played the host of a Tales from the Crypt spinoff uh, titled uh, Two Fisted Tales." Uh, this apparently wasn't picked up. They ended up just using the three episodes I think that they shot, using mm-hmm. them as Tales from the Crypt episodes. But he had this whole persona of Mister Rush, a crazy old cowboy in a wheelchair. And if you look it up on YouTube, you can find clips of it. It's like. He's just completely over the top in the role, as one should be. Oh, yeah. William Sadler is always like a high-tension cable. You know, he's Mm -hmm. like one of those, like, steel cables that a tram car rides along. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, throughout his career, he's played very serious characters, and he's played just, yeah, real live wires. He he seemed to have a tremendous amount of range there. But you don't see him, I guess, playing the hero as much. No. But in this one, he is. Well, because he's got an evil-looking face. Yeah. Yeah, but it works here because he's supposed to be. He's a. I mean, he's a guy on the very, um, you know, um, margins of of law and society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Some of the rest of the cast here. Uh, CCH Pounder. We already mentioned she plays the character Irene. She's a she's a talented actor. Probably best known for her role on The Shield. She was in Avatar. She was in RoboCop Three, and a lot of TV work. I think she does one of those big crime TV shows now, doesn't she? Like NCIS or something. I think so. Yeah, she. that's yeah. the sort of show that she seemed to get a lot of work on. Now, uh, another character actor in this is uh, uh, somebody you'll recognize from previous episodes of Weird House, and that is Dick Miller, who plays oh. Uncle Willie. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, I would say this, whatever you expect of a Dick Miller character, you will get it from this film. He's not really playing against type or anything, but nope. it's a substantial role. And I found out uh, on the special features for this one, this was his first time in his entire career in which he wore uh, prosthetic makeup. Oh, wow. I assume this is for the part where he turns into a demon, not for his regular regular appearance. Because here he is, like you say, playing perfectly to type. He is just a whiskey guzzling drifter. Yeah. 
And there's some great drifter to drifter uh, uh, relations between him and William Sadler. Yeah, yeah, they have they have some good scenes. Um, apparently, Dick, like Dick Miller was, you know, in all these old older films, these Corman films and all. So apparently, the effects guys and Dickerson himself, they were just super thrilled to have Dick Miller on the picture because you know this mm-hmm. is a guy that was in all those old films that, that, that they they grew up watching. So right, uh, so that's pretty. Cool. Weren't you a vacuum salesman in a movie I saw when I was a kid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't you get taken down to the furnace by by the Marlboro Man. It's like I've seen you die so many times. How about one more time? Um, let's see. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church is in this. Plays a character named Roach. Um, kind of Church is kind of a, like a younger, handsomer William Sadler in some ways. Um, mm. Yeah, in this movie, he pl- so he plays this swaggering creep, but with a swaggering creep with a luxurious like. Jethro Tull roadie hair. Yeah. And he's also wearing a Trent Reznor style see-through t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's absolutely hateable in this role in, in all yeah. the right ways. Like he really, right. really makes you hate this character. Uh, this was only his third film role, though. Wow. Yeah. Huh. yeah he'd, he'd go on to, I mean, he was, I think he'd already been on the show Wings. And that's what he was mainly known for. But he went on, of course, being Sideways and Spider-Man 3. Now, the movie, of course, like any good horror movie, especially any good horror movie from the 90s, has its share of useless cops. Yeah. And we have two useless cops in this, one of which dies pretty soon. The other is the deputy, Deputy Bob Martell, that, that mm-hmm. survives very long into the film. And this is this is played by character actor Gary Farmer. And here is your absolutely solid overdrawn in the memory bank connection because he <gasps> was in overdrawn in the memory bank. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, of course, was um, an, a 1983 American Playhouse um, uh, rendition of Overdrawn at the Memory Bank that starred Raul Julia. And he just has a small, uh, ultimately kind of awkward role in it. Um, mm. But he went on to be in a ton more uh, more stuff. So he was born in 53. Uh, he's a Canadian First Nations actor. And um, let's see. Some, like, for instance, he went on to be in Dead Man, the, 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 the Western with uh, oh, Johnny Depp. Oh, the Jim Jarmusch movie, yeah. Yeah. And then also in his film Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, he actually plays the same character in those two films. He plays this character named Nobody. Okay, Yeah. And he was also apparently under consideration for the role of Dr. Gonzo in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but uh, but that didn't come together for some reason. Oh, that ultimately went to, um, what's his name? Benicio Del Toro? Yes, Benicio Del Toro, yes. Um, oh, you know what? Actually, I should go back on what I said earlier, because I, I said that this movie has useless cops, and it is a a very reliable trope of, of horror movies, especially like horror movies of the nineties, but it's, it's pretty much always there that you can just count on cops to not be useful in them. You know, like the, right. you, you run up, you never have the scene where you run up to a cop and say, uh, there's a monster chasing us. And they whip out their gun and say, where get behind me. <laughs> no, it's always like, Oh, calm down, Missy. And then there's just like a claw sticking through their face or something. Um, but yeah. in this movie, uh, G- Gary Farmer's Deputy Bob, he actually he becomes more useful as the movie goes on than is actually kind of heroic by the end. Yeah, yeah. Even, even though he, you know, as as a character actor, he has this kind of like bumbling quality to him, mm-hmm. you know, that plays well to comedy. And he does some good right. comedy in this. Uh, but yeah, he, he also they, they do more with the character than just have him fumble a gun and get killed by a monster. All right, another interesting character we have in this is Charles Fleischer, who plays his character Wally. Um, 
I think this is a character. A lot of you may not not recognize his name. Some of you may not even recognize a picture of him, but you would recognize his voice, at least Uh one voice that he does, because he was the voice of Roger Rabbit. Wow. And uh, outside of that, he often plays weirdos. He has a real kind of like weirdo look to him. You know, he plays that kind of character well. Uh, he doesn't disappoint in this film. He plays another weirdo. He plays a very awkward guy in this yeah. movie. But uh, but he's, he's I've seen him in a number of things. He had a, a fun role, recurring role on Jonathan Ames TV series Blunt Talk. Hmm. Uh, so he, he's always a treat when he shows up. But it doesn't seem he doesn't show up a lot in things I watch. Now, we know that Ernest Dickerson was himself cinematographer on on a bunch of other movies. So he's directing here. Who, who does the cinematography? Uh, one Rick Boda or Bada, B-O-T-A, um, who went on to direct not one. Not two, but three direct-to-video Hellraiser sequels right in a row. Hellseeker, Debtor, and Hellworld. I believe that's going to be your numbers six, seven, and eight in the Hellraiser series. I would say that is not a high point of the series. (laughs) Um, But it's weird because – so those are not very good Hellraiser movies, but – I like his cinematography style in the movie. It's nothing, um, you know, it's nothing all that artistic, but it's very fluid. I mean, like uh, it's good in the sense that it's the kind of good filmmaking that you you're not thinking about technique. Yeah, yeah, and it has some some nice use of gels in places that that kind of give it that tales from the crypt vibe without like overdoing it. Um, Right. Like you see a similar thing done in uh, what was Stephen King. uh, creep show uh, where they, this oh, was okay. also an homage to you know, horror comics of old, but there are scenes in that where they, they, they just go crazy with the gels to create yeah. these kind of comic book colors. And there's, so there's a little of it in here, but it feels a lot, a lot more restrained. So hell world is the evil dead or not evil dead. The, uh, the, I've totally forgotten what it's called. Hellraiser. Hell Hell World is the Hellraiser movie where the tagline is evil goes online. Oh man. It's the one where they they go to. So I think it's supposed to be that that Pinhead is in a computer or something. But then nobody ever really goes online in the movie. I was talking to my friend Chuck about this not too long mm-hmm. ago. He pointed out that it's really a very offline movie. It's about a party. <laughs> people people go to a big party at somebody's house, and and Pinhead starts killing them. Oh wow. Well, yeah, I never saw any of those those these three Hellraiser films in particular, but they all had Doug Bradley in them at least a little bit, so they have that going for them, I guess. Uh, Hellworld also has Lance Henriksen. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I read about that where they were able uh, they were able to get him for the role because he happened to be in. I want to say these were filmed in Romania, and he was in Romania already film filming some huh. other role, and they're like, "Hey, we can get Lance Henriksen. <laughs> He's got another day or two on his uh, hotel room," and they did it. Perfect serendipity yeah now, uh, now we we mentioned that the the cinematography of the movie is quite effective it's uh it's nothing too flashy but it's fun and it's loose and it's very fluid and uh and you're just right in there in the action i would say the same thing for the the makeup effects in the movie which are quite good yeah yeah the the makeup and the monsters in this are great and we have uh the todd masters company to thank for this they did all the special makeup on the the picture they did the monsters and uh, and Masters was ideal for this because he was a Tales from the Crypt veteran already at that point, and he's he's done a lot of film and TV work, uh, uh, and he he did a great job on the monsters in this film as well. From like a 
just from a, like a, a, a conceptual standpoint, because apparently in the early stages, the monsters were going to be more zombie-like or just kind of like possessed people. Mm-hmm. And he ended up pushing for a different design, a design that ultimately I think ended up being cheaper, which the studio liked, but it, re- but it leaned heavily on body paint and lean actors uh, in stilts with just uh, prosthetic heads and uh, some interesting like uh, groin and tail features that we'll get to uh, mm. here in a bit. The monsters are terrific. But yeah. Ma- Masters has been involved in a number of different films that have great practical special effects like ne- Necronomicon Book of the Dead, uh, Hellraiser Bloodline, The uh. Resurrected. The Resurrected is the the good Lovecraft movie that I was trying to remember in a previous episode. Um, <laughs> he was in the fifth nightmare on M street movie. He was in return of, uh, not in, he did the effects for him. return right. of swamp thing, slither star Trek, first contact. He did the Borg stuff in that with the, you know, the Borg queen. Uh, he was okay. responsible for yeah. that. Uh huh. And apparently he's going to direct a movie, uh, according to IMDb about giant leeches. So bringing the giant leeches back, I think they've been absent from cinema for, well, what, since the 50s or something. Oh, bring them on. But yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I really love the monster design in this movie. It's simple. They look great. They've got green glowing eyes and mouths. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. All right. Well, let's jump into the film itself. Let's Let's roll through the plot. Well, so uh, first of all, you have a classic Tales from the Crypt opening, which is, you know, your dolly shot through the cobwebby mansion, and then you go down a secret passageway into the dungeon, and it looks like it's the lair of Dr. Faustus, and then the Crypt Keeper, he pops up out of a coffin and cackles at you. And as I said before, all the sound effects here, it's the the, the Tales from the Crypt music is playing, and then you get the <laughs> Crypt Keeper laugh. That is that is such a powerful auditory cue to '90s childhood mindset. <laughs> I showed the, just the opening to my son uh, to see how he would dig it, and he did not dig it. He found it. Oh. Uh, he found it. He found it frightening, uh, and he did not want any part of it. Oh, uh, that's probably all for the best. The, this yeah. movie is not for kids. <laughs> no, not, not not to say he was traumatized by it or anything, but I was like, "You want to check this out for Halloween?" And he's like, "Okay, sure." And then he saw it, and he's like, "No, thank you." <laughs> Now, I don't know if we even mentioned this before, but the movie starts with an opening segment that is not connected to the rest of the plot. Uh, I guess we did mention that there were brackets, but it starts you off in media res with uh, with stuff going on with other characters. You like pan up and uh, it's on the scene of a, a woman reclining in lingerie talking on the phone about how she has just murdered her husband, like his bloody clothes are still all over the place. And he's and we see he's downstairs dissolving in a tub of acid in the basement and she's talking to her lover on the phone about how much they're going to enjoy spending all of the dead guy's money mm-hmm. and uh, then of course pretty much immediately the tub corpse wakes up and then it climbs the stairs and it has a hatchet in its hand and it charges in on her in a psycho style scene where she's in the bathtub and he's like ah and then we get a cut, 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 and it turns out it's a movie within a movie. The Corpse Man is being played by John Larroquette, uh, <laughs> which is just excellent. Wait, did we already talk about John Larroquette? Uh, we didn't, but of course, he's he's most famous, or at least for older uh, uh, TV viewers, for being uh, the, the lawyer. What was his name? Uh, Felding on uh, Night Court? I uh, never saw Night Court. Dan he also, Fielding, I'm sorry. Yeah, he also plays a lawyer at some point on The West Wing. 
Yeah, he played a lot of characters like that. But um, yeah. for horror fans, he, of course, was the narrator on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that opening scroll that sets the tone for the film. And uh-huh. then he did that at least in the, the follow-up in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I'm not sure if, if he did any of the sequels beyond that. I, I think he did. Uh, but most notably, that first one, though, really the, the first thing you hear in that, that picture. He He's good at playing a kind of like a thundering, conceited, pompous windbag. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's... That's everything that he played to a T. But in this movie, it's funny because uh, he's just got this bit part where he plays an actor playing a, a tub corpse who's about to hatchet his uh, his scheming ex-wife to death. And then uh, but it turns out it's a movie within a movie. And then we pan up on the Crypt Keeper who's sitting in the director's chair. So imagine Jeremy Bentham's preserved remains and start he, he starts screaming at John Larroquette about how he can't act at all. He's like, you're no gory Cooper. You're not even a Robert Dedford. <laughs> and it was an ambitious bit of uh, special effects here because mm. they they clearly had an, a, a live actor doing some sort of like green screen uh, head. Mm-hmm. And then they put the, the puppeteered uh, Crypt Keeper head over that in post. Uh, right. So it looks it looks maybe a tiny bit rough. You can tell there's some some ambitious uh, special effects going on here, but it's still amusing, which makes sense. You know, this is Tales from the Crypt, the movie. You should go for it, right? Right. And it's great because so this opening film within a film thing is is perfect. It It is a Tales from the Crypt episode. You know, it's a seedy tale in which a bad person gets what's coming to them. Yeah. But so then, of course, we get the Crypt Keeper uh, introducing the main story. He's, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he makes a bunch of puns. And then he's like, I call this one Demon Knight. And then we cut to the opening credits over a, a car cruising on a dark desert highway with the most perfect 1995 soundtrack choice. That's right. It's Filter's Hey Man, Nice Shot, which was also <laughs> in the trailer, I think, uh-huh. uh, which I think this is just mandatory. This was just U.S. law that if you had a film that came out in 95, you had to use uh, Hey Man, Nice Shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was it, it was hard to contain the laughter while that was going on. <laughs> and then, of course, we see William Sadler driving uh, and he's you know looking over his shoulder as if pursued by the hounds of hell. But no, it's even worse. It's Billy Zane in a cowboy hat. And. <laughs> Uh, it's very funny when it first reveals Billy Zane's smirking face in the in the car that's chasing William Sadler. And so William Sadler starts to run out of gas on this desert highway, and there is a highway showdown slash shootout. Like, Billy Zane's riding up on him, and William Sadler gets out a rifle. It's like a lever-action rifle and starts shooting at Billy Zane's car. Eventually, the car catches on fire, but Billy Zane, undeterred, just rams straight into Sadler's car. Sadler gets out of it at the last second and there's this huge fiery ramming explosion so william sadler escapes the flaming wreckage and i guess we're supposed to assume as as the naive audience that billy zane has been killed in the explosion i guess but why would we actually believe that i mean would it make sense for billy zane to be killed no it doesn't does it uh but william sadler he looks at his palm and he sees a bunch of dots i think they're little like star tattoos on his palm and some of them are glowing and others are not and then he just sort of ambles on through the night he's got he's got drifter energy 
He's got places to be, uh, apocalypses to prevent. Right. And so he, he ambles on into Wormwood, New Mexico. Uh, again, not a real place. And, and goes up to a diner called the Halfway House Cafe <laughs> and immediately starts trying to jack cars. Like he gets out a, a butterfly knife and is sticking it in the keyhole of a car outside in the parking lot. And a kid comes out and he's like, hey, are you stealing my daddy's car? And he's like, no, I'm just testing the lock. Wormwood, New Mexico, seems like a very interesting place because not only do they have drifters, it seems to be exclusively populated by drifters. Like, I want to meet other drifters that make up this town, like Mayor Drifter and uh, the rest of the post office. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, everybody's kind of like a a suspect uh, drifter-type character. It's a drifter community. uh, Like, the characters in the town who are not drifters they're written in such a way that they're like one decision away from yeah. being a drifter. Yeah. I mean, we all are really, but, but especially these characters. Uh, so anyway, a bunch of people run out of the diner. I think one of the people who runs out is Thomas Hayden church, but a bunch of people run out and then they run William Sadler off. So he's chased off into the night where he runs into Dick Miller as mm-hmm. an old drunk. Uh, and they, they share some whiskey and commiserate for a bit. And then Dick Miller tells him that, hey, I know a place where you can bed down for the night. And so they're funneling him toward this old church. You can immediately tell the sort of plot mechanics that are happening here. We're, we're sieving all of the characters into this one uh, fortress location. Now, fun uh, fact about this location. Uh, it, it looks really great. It looks phenomenal. Uh, but uh, when they went to, to, to put the film together, uh, Dickerson particularly did not want to film at night and have like really long nights of shoots for the, the cast and crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one of the reasons that instead they got an, an, an airplane hangar. And in it, they built that building and the immediate surroundings. Oh, nice. Uh, like in its entirety so that they could just film during the day at their leisure and have complete control over the um, uh, the lighting but there was one issue pigeons had uh, were, were already living uh, in there uh, in in the airplane hangar uh-huh. and you know how pigeons uh, are they they're constantly making noise they're making these mm-hmm. pigeon noises so they they couldn't get rid of the pigeons but what they ended up doing is every time before they would roll uh, the uh, roll the camera before they'd uh, you know say action they would fire off um, a blank they would fire off a gun in order to frighten the pigeons and get them to shut up so they could they could have this window of time in which they could film <laughs> before the pigeons started their ruckus again. Oh, that's funny. Somehow I feel like I could kind of sense that it was that it was indoor for outdoor, even though that it's a vast expanse. Like you can't see the walls of the airplane hangar right. or anything, but um that's good. And I think I've said this on the show before. I for some reason always really enjoy a good indoor for outdoor set. Well, it like can a, make a very surreal uh, environment, you know, and it yeah. makes sense for this film because the only exteriors we have are this loathsome former church in the middle of a desert at the end of the world. And mm-hmm. then one flashback uh, to the crucifixion. So, <laughs> right. so it, yeah. So it makes sense that, that we have this sort of alien environment created by shooting everything inside of an airplane hangar. Exactly. Uh, but so what? what is this church? Dick Miller explains to us that it, it's a church that isn't a church anymore. He says they decommissioned it in the 50s due to lack of interest. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the official terminology on the uh, decommissioning form. Right, yeah. I was like, interest on whose part? Like on the, the preacher there? or <laughs> I think it was the town. It was just, you know, yeah. it's just a bunch of drifters. It's just care. like, I'm not interested in that, Reverend. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, but so, yeah, it turns into it, it turns out to be this boarding house. It's like a, a desert hotel sort of. And it's it's like we said, it's like the evil dead cabin for the movie, the fortress of order that will collect the characters and then fall under attack. It's the supernatural Alamo. Yeah. Oh, and then meanwhile, we also see that uh, Billy Zane is hooking up with the police. Like the police are investigating the crash on the on the highway. The cars are on fire. They're like, nobody could have survived that. Those cars hit each other going 100 miles per hour, which we saw that opening scene. They were not going 100 miles an hour, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, But then Billy Zane just sort of like walks out from behind the flaming car and he's like, hey, what's up? And they're all like, oh, uh, I didn't think you could have survived that. Uh, but so he explains to them that he was chasing a man who stole something. And so they're like, well, we'll help you find him. And so Zane, therefore, enlists the police on his team initially. Yeah, he's just so ding-dang charming. They just can't say no. Yeah. Now, uh, I have to say, the, the film does a great job setting all this up. There's, there's no wasted motion, really, in getting us from here into our siege location and beginning to establish the rules for everything. Um, and then the characters are mostly there to fulfill basic tropes in the story, you know, again, like the, um, the, the bumbling cop, etc. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I feel like it comes together rather, rather well and also ultimately surprises you with a few choices in, in terms of, like, who survives and who doesn't. Yeah, totally. All right, we got everybody more or less bottled up inside this uh, this old building. Who are our characters? Okay, uh, I I'm not going to remember all of them, but the, so the main ones, I guess you got uh, William Sadler as as this guy who will find out is named Breaker. He's the Drifter. You've got Jada Pinkett playing Geraldine, who is uh, she is somebody who I think formerly was in prison and now she's working for the boarding house on work release. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got CCH Pounder, who is playing Irene, who is the owner-proprietor of the boarding house. You've got uh, Cordelia, who is a prostitute. You've got Wally, who is a mail carrier. You've got Thomas Hayden Church. I don't remember his character's name, but he's the creep. He's the Roach. The guy with, he's Roach. Roach, right. Yeah, he's like the cook at the diner mm-hmm. who is just a, a, a nasty backstabbing wo- woman-hating creep. And then a few others. Uh, well, you got Uncle um, Wally in there. Um Oh, did we not already talk about Uncle Walt? Well, we no, talked not about Uncle it. Uncle Willie. Uncle, Uncle Willie. Willie. That's, sorry, that's that's Dick Miller. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then we'll have the the police, and then oh, and there's a kid who shows up later. I yeah. think. I'm, but that, I'm that's not... basically it. That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I may have forgotten somebody. Uh, there's a great scene when we're sort of just getting to know all the characters. There's a scene of Breaker eating this food on the <laughs> table. It's just bright green slop. It looks like the slime that they used to have on Nickelodeon. Yeah. Uh, so it's just bright green liquid that he's eating with a spoon and he slathers it in ketchup. Yeah. Yeah. He, but he's happy to get it. He's just, he's clearly yeah. famished. Yeah. And then eventually the police arrive with Billy Zane in response to a report of an attempted car theft. I think that was William Sadler trying to to jack the car with his knife earlier. And as soon as Billy Zane arrives and sees William Sadler in this boarding house, it's just like like the you know, the lights go off and he's sicking the cops on him. They've got they've got William Sadler in cuffs and Zane is looking for what Breaker stole, which is an antiquity of some kind. Yeah, and that's going to be our our, our main plot uh, element here. The uh, that we'll get into in a bit. This is the key. This is the right. thing that the demons want, and that the the mortals uh, in the universe absolutely cannot let fall into their hands. 
Right. And then Dick Miller sells him out. I, I felt betrayed. So they've got him in the cuffs there. They're like, where is the thing? They've been looking around for it. I think they come across Thomas Hayden Church in, in the middle of some kind of sex act that involves him getting hooked up to a car battery. Oh, yeah. He has a great line, doesn't he? He's like, my nipples are burning. Yeah. <laughs> I think he says they're smoking. Smoking. My nipples yeah. are smoking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. I hope it's in his reel. Oh, it's got to be. Uh, but yeah, eventually they, they've looked all over for this thing. They can't find it. And then Dick Miller sells him out. He sells out Breaker. Uh, he's like, hey, actually, the artifact is just here under the table where everybody's standing. Yeah. Um, and it's some kind of key, but it's also like a bottle filled mm-hmm. with some liquid. Yep. And Billy Zane won't touch it. It's clear something very significant is going on. What he wants is for Dick Miller to pour out its contents and then put it into a suitcase for him. And Breaker tells him not to do it. And they argue back and forth. And eventually the cops are like, ah, to hell with it. Uh, both of the cars from this car crash were stolen. You're both going to jail and we'll figure it out later. So they try to take Sadler and Zane off to jail. But then Zane, I think the uh, a switch flips and he comes off the leash with an excellent punch right through the sheriff's head, through the sheriff's head, Ricky O style. Yeah, except unlike Ricky O, it's, it's got this wonderful awkwardness of the head being stuck on his fist, on his yes. arm. So yeah. it's like having to try and get that off of his hand. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, and then all hell breaks loose. Uh, Billy fights to get the key. Uh, Breaker burns him with it. So it's like a vampire with a crucifix. You know, if you touch the key to his face, it seems to burn him. And then uh, Billy Zane flies out the window and then stands there while everybody watches him and he pierces his palm with a fingernail, bleeds a bunch of green blood all over the place, and the drops of his green blood on the earth make an army of demons to attack the house. He throws a nice hissy fit first, though. There's a, there's yeah, a great yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, then he starts summoning the monsters. And man, if you if you weren't already on board with this once the monsters pop out in this film you're really good to go because these are some great monsters again these are like they're they're unlike most monsters i've seen in other films they're like these ghastly gaunt grave walker types Mm -hmm. but with also with the with the glowing green eyes that we mentioned but also like piercings in places but but not in like a punk sense in a like a seemingly like antique sense like they're creatures of another time even you know yeah, uh, so so they have. I feel like they they play against expectations in the of the typical demon and zombie trope, like the, like the jewelry you might find in like an ancient grave or something, you know, like ancient Egypt or Sutton Hoo or something. Yeah, they have kind of a gin quality to them, and yeah. they have a great silhouette to them. You know, it's kind of like when you think of. Um, like having a good logo, they say, well, it has to be able to work in black and white. Or when you think of like a con- iconic characters like Darth Vader, you can recognize him by his silhouette. And these mm-hmm. monsters cut a really signature silhouette, which is key because they're often just sh- they're, you, you see some great close ups of them, but they're often just in the background, in the in the shadows, kind of creeping about and all. Yeah, and that that's great also because they provide a, a sort of textural setting that really allows Billy Zane to shine because Billy Zane is the front man doing his uh, doing his his funny shtick. He's like a mm-hmm. you know a, a burlesque comedian or something, yeah. <laughs> and then he's got the green eyed goblins all slinking around behind him to back him up. They're his chorus yeah. line. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now on the featurette, one cool thing they mentioned. I mentioned how like basically these are these these outfits depend heavily on just body painting, like slender actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of like skin involved and there's stilts. But then they have an awesome prosthetic head that looks kind of like a you know demonic 
pickled pig or something. Uh, and then yeah. they then they have this. Uh, their their groin and their their um their their that area is covered up and they have these tails uh these like stunted tails that wag and apparently those were radio controlled and the actors had to stow the battery like high up between their legs so it was <laughs> quite a demanding role of you know stilts battery between your leg big piece of prosthetics over your head but uh-huh. it, the the end result looks tremendous I totally agree. So so once these monsters are in play and Billy Zane's outside trying to cause trouble, uh, we've got scenes of uh, William Sadler running around the house trying to seal up the openings, like seal up the doors and windows with blood from this key. And uh, then we get flashbacks of the crucifixion of Jesus yep. <laughs> involving green-eyed demons and, and lightning strikes. Yeah, yeah, and again, they have a they have a, has an excellent otherworldly feel to it. Like this could be the crucifixion on an alien world. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which, especially since it it seems a bit different, because I mean, some of you, um, you've ever went to Sunday school, uh, you know, if you've ever read your Bible, you probably don't remember the hooded uh, demons that are showing up and chasing people around uh, uh, at, at the foot of the cross. But it, it happens here. Uh, history is written by the victors. You know, yeah. the, the demons lost that struggle, so they got written out of the story. <laughs> This is funny because it made me think about what is the best Golgotha scene ever in a horror movie. And uh, another one that occurred to me is Lair of the White Worm by Ken Russell, which is an awesomely weird movie that we may have to cover on here someday. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one has a good one. I feel like maybe there's at least one other Ken Russell film that has a crucifixion scene in it. Doesn't it show up in uh, his oh, acid the Devils? Movie? Well, maybe in The Devils, but also in the uh, uh, Altered States Right. Oh, the one where William Hurd is sort of playing R. Gordon Wasson, or or maybe he's playing uh, what's his name, uh, the guy you did an episode about. Oh, John C. Lilly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that one has a weird crucifixion in it. Uh, there's also an excellent otherworldly crucifixion scene in uh, the Ninth Configuration, the 1980 uh, film directed by William Peter Blatty uh, and written by him based on one of his novels. Hmm. Yeah. It's uh, that one. Whew, that's a weird film we could discuss, and it's got some great performances in it. So after this part where the the demons are set loose, the rest of the movie, uh, you could say it becomes less structured, I guess, because it's just sort of like a, you know, you get different sort of vignettes within the supernatural demon siege. Like you get Mm -hmm. uh, Billy Zane issuing hallucinatory temptations to various characters in the boarding house. uh, And then often this temptation scene will be followed by demon possession of the person. And then there will be attacks by monsters, humans attempting to escape and and so forth uh and more flashbacks about the backstory of the key uh we 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 get to see breaker in world war one it seems looking Mm -hmm. exactly the same age he's in the trenches a buddy of his gets killed somehow and is bleeding all over the place and the guy's like now you are the chosen one and and the i guess the the memory of the crucifixion of jesus gets like downloaded into william sadler's brain yeah, and he's, he's now part of this lineage of immortals that have to protect the key and carry it through time. Right. And eventually Breaker has to explain this to all the other characters, and they're like, wow, that's interesting. You're the chosen one across time, and you've been alive since World War One." And Thomas Hayden Church, who I just <laughs> realized earlier his, his initials are THC, but anyway, he, <laughs> he comes up. So he's been a jerk the entire time so far. He's been you know uh, acting cowardly and cruel to others. And after this story, he comes up to <laughs> Breaker, and he's like, wow, I really admire what you did. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I was wrong about you. Uh, but then, of course, what he's really trying to do is uh, get Breaker to let his guard down so he can double cross him and he swipes the key from him. Yeah. Now, now he swiped the key. Meanwhile, the temptations continue because even yeah. though Billy Zane and his demon minions are stuck outside for the most part, uh-huh. uh, he can reach out to your mind and tempt you, uh, last temptation of Christ style, with <laughs> something you want. And some of the, these make for some nice fun little sequences. Uh, for instance, when he's um, tempting uh, Jada Pinkett's character, um, it's it's uh, this is the sequence where it's like in a, it feels like it's in a parking garage and there's this weird scene of of her face on a screen and they're like demon hands on the other side pressing against it. Mm-hmm. And then when that rips open, she's she sees this image of breakers, a breaker like being torn apart by the creatures of them eating his entrails. Yeah. Well, he's I think Billy Zane's tempting her with the idea that she that he could make her like rich and famous. Yeah, and she'll admired. see the world. Yeah. yeah, she'll see the world. Oh, it's like it's like the Vivitch, you know. Uh, yeah. What's they like to see the world? And it seems Jada Pinkett really would like to see the world. Like she's interested in this temptation, though she doesn't fall for it. She's got the heroic constitution uh, to to resist the temptation. I'm not sure what what would that what would that saving throw be in D and D? Well, I guess that would be uh, that'd be like a wisdom saving throw. I okay. guess. Yeah. So or yeah, maybe so, a charisma. I don't know. Depends how you play it. Probably wisdom. She succeeds on the wisdom saving throw. She resists the temptation, but what he's tempting her with is like, it's not exactly clear, but it seems to suggest like, yeah, you could have your face on the cover of magazines and you could travel to all the capitals of the world and see Rome and everything. Uh, Wouldn't you like that? Oh, and the whole time the Gravediggers track uh, 1-800-SUICIDE is playing, which is just a great beat in the background. Yeah, that's an awesome song. I don't. Does it ever get to the part with lyrics? I don't. Recall I don't think that. they just, use that much of it. Yeah, they just use yeah. the intro. You got to be looking for it to notice it. Uh, but the, yeah, that is a great beat. It does not get to the part about confront an alligator, let it eat you raw. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but there are other temptation scenes as well, right? Oh yeah, there's a bunch of them. There's uh, the temptation of Dick Miller is great because his is quite different. His is a world of beautiful naked women offering him bottles of scotch, and then he <laughs> just sort of like wanders through this this crowd of ladies being like, "Try mine," and holds up, but they're all holding identical bottles of scotch, I think. <laughs> and then he goes up. Maybe maybe Dick Miller is just dedicated to one brand. I couldn't tell what brand it was. They've got the labels turned away. Um, but then he he goes up to a bar, and then it turns out Billy Zane is the bartender in this temptation dream, and he so he's a friendly bartender who offers him booze, but I think is also supposed to be Hunter S. Thompson. Was I mistaken here? No, I think you're right. It's very very much a Hunter S. Thompson look he has going on behind the bar there. Yeah, and again, it's it's it is Billy Zane is an evil um, genie from the Disney movie Aladdin here, uh, and, and it, it works really well. I can't remember what Billy Zane says. Maybe something about the golf shoes, but uh, <laughs> but it works. Oh, but anyway, this leads to, you know, as the standard sequence is somebody has a temptation. They succumb to the temptation. They're like, yeah, I want I want what you are putting down, Billy Zane. Um, and Dick Miller obviously wants this. And so he turns into a demon and attacks some of the characters. I don't remember all who, but uh, I think maybe he's fighting with Jada Pinkett and, and with uh, William Sadler. And, and somehow – his head gets cut off 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's a great scene where they – oh, the demons are vulnerable in their eyes. The way you can put a demon down is to like shoot it in the green eyeballs. And so the way they stop Dick Miller's severed head from continually commanding his body to attack them is one of the characters grabs his head and shoves it into the antler of a mounted stag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some great eye violence uh, to the demons in this film. Yeah. There's also a great scene where Billy Zane is wheeling and dealing with Thomas Hayden Church because uh, remember THC is uh, he's been like, hey, I've got the key. I stole it. You know, I'll give it to you if you let me escape. And so they're they're talking about their deal. Uh, and Billy Zane is just walking on sunshine. He is so <laughs> light on his feet and frisky and exciting. Yeah, he is. It's it's another great scene. And it's yeah. And you know exactly what's going to happen. You know, and it's it's delightful. This is a scene in which it's it's like uh, Tales from the Crypt classic again, because you have a horrible character that's going to make that's making this choice. You think he's going to get away, but no, he's not going to get away with it because he's going to be double crossed by Billy Zane. Of course, uh, he barely makes it down the stairs uh, before he says, "Actually, I lied. You're not going to make it away safe." And all the demons uh, turn on Thomas Hayden Church and tear his character to pieces. The next thing that was really funny was that there is a scene of uh, the next temptation scene is of the kid, Billy, where he is turned into a violent maniac by reading a copy of the Tales from the Crypt comic book. I like that because on one hand it does, it is the idea of like the corrupting comic book, but it Mm. also made me think, you know, with the adults, Billy Zane's character, the collector, he's like, what if I offered you travel? What if I offered you all the beautiful women and booze in the world? But for a kid, he's like... What if I just literally turned you into a bloodthirsty monster? Would you be down for that? And uh, the kid's like, yes, yeah. and, yes, uh, I vote yes. Yeah, let's do exactly <laughs> that then, and that's what happens. <laughs> Pure honesty. I love it. Now, as the characters, it's the kind of standard thing where in one of these supernatural fortress siege movies where the characters are continually driven further and further into retreat, like further back into the Bailey or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at this point, they they end up retreating to the attic. And at each point of retreat, there's some kind of battle that goes on. And uh, we, we get some chances for characters to actually be like uh, courageous and be heroes. We, uh, so uh, Deputy Bob and Irene at one point, like suicide bomb a bunch of the demons with a vest made out of grenades yeah they've been watching aliens <laughs> where right, did they yes they pull a vasquez uh, and, and it's kind of sweet yeah yeah it is yeah. Uh, um, and of course breaker bites it as well uh shortly right. thereafter yeah he gets maimed and then of course uh he's like oh oh they got me they got me you got to become the new chosen one <laughs> to jada pinkett mm-hmm. and she's like what uh but she i guess that she like catches his blood i think in the key and it's mm-hmm. just understood that, yep, from now on, she's just going to be immortal and, and carrying this key around. But then uh, then Billy Zane comes in for one final showdown with, with Jada. And uh, so and it, I got to say, at the beginning of the scene, he's got on sunglasses that make him look like Riddick. Oh, pre-Riddick, but, but kind of like Riddick, yeah. Wait, what kind of Riddick? Like pre-Riddick. This would, Riddick didn't exist yet, right? Oh, I guess not, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, maybe would... Vin Diesel, eventually he saw Demon Nine. He's like, that. that's the look I'm going to steal. Right, exactly. No, I'm not saying they're imitating Riddick. <laughs> I'm just saying he does look like him. I guess yeah, with yeah, the goggles. No, they look kind of like, yeah, almost like wraparound uh, goggles. Yeah. Yeah. But there's another temptation scene where I guess he's trying once again. I think he's trying to convince Geraldine to marry him. I didn't exactly follow what was going on. Yeah. I think that was it. Basically, it's like, well, I've won at this point. I'm going to kill you. But – 
if I could turn you instead, if I could, you know, if you marry me, mm-hmm. then I'm even more uh, of a success back home in the, in the hells. Right. <laughs> so he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot the moon. I'm going for it. You know, yeah. he's, he's, he's feeling on top of it. And, uh, so he makes the offer. Yeah. And Billy Zane, it, he is on broiler mode in this scene. <laughs> he, he is like, uh, the energy is electric and uh there's a part where infernal lightning erupts out of his groin i don't know if that's explained why he's just been like talking and then like lightning shoots out of his crotch that was uh, in the uh the featurettes it was mentioned that this was zane's idea for the character uh and dickerson was like let's do it let's roll with it let's give it a shot (laughs) good choice yeah. Um, and then there's a good climax that involves Jada Pinkett the whole time. It, she somehow has gotten William Sadler's blood in her mouth. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, Billy Zane's like asking her, well, well, what do you say? He's trying to get her to say something and she won't. And then it's revealed that, oh, she hasn't said anything because she still has the blood in her mouth. The blood of Christ, I believe, somehow. Okay. So, yeah, we can go ahead and talk about, about this real quick. The idea is that this key with the special uh, glass container portion of it uh-huh. here. They, it was used to collect the blood of Christ at the crucifixion. Okay. And it's like the grail myth, yeah. Yeah. And there's still a little Jesus blood in there, but it's been replenished with other people's blood, especially the blood of the chosen ones over uh-huh. time. And so I'm not sure how the genetics of that works out or if that's important for holy blood, uh, you know, hurting demons, but that's mm-hmm. apparently how it's supposed to work. Right. And so she's got this blood in her mouth and what do you know? She spits it all over Billy Zane's face, and that that defeats him in the end. Yeah, a great and, melt. It's a great death scene because he melts oh, yeah. a little bit. Then he but then it, he turns, turns into, into a puppet. Yeah, he turns into a giant skeletal demon, mm-hmm. and then he explodes. They just do all the things. Like the FX team, just they, they had no chill on this film. They were just right. <laughs> yeah, hundred miles an hour the whole time. And so I guess we're just going to assume that now Jada Pinkett is going to live for 80 years or whatever until eventually she has to find the next chosen one to put her blood into so they can go on uh, preventing Billy Zane from taking over the world. Or I guess it's not Billy Zane. I think he's destroyed. There's just going to be a new collector from hell chasing her around. Right. And we see him at the end. Yeah. Because she gets on a bus and when she gets on, she does the thing with the blood that's done throughout the film where you form a seal. Mm-hmm. that the demons cannot cross. And then this uh, other guy that has a briefcase for the, 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 the key, he sees it and he's like, no, I'll wait on the next bus. And so the chase continues and, uh, and it potentially sets up a sequel that we never got. But uh, mm-hmm. man, I, I think it would have been good. Would have been far preferable to uh, Bordello of Blood, which was the, the actual Tales from the Crypt <laughs> film to follow. I never saw Bordello of Blood, but I remember a when I was in elementary school, a friend of mine telling me about how his mom had a copy of that movie on, on VHS. And <laughs> I was like, uh, I did not know what Bordello meant. And I, and I knew nothing of, of Dennis Miller. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it definitely has Dennis Miller in it. Uh, I never saw that one. There was even a third one that was, I, I think, is, is even less worth seeing. I think it may have Tim Curry in it, but it's like a New Orleans <gasps> uh, zombie kind of a thing. How could a movie with Tim Curry be not worth seeing? I don't know. It just doesn't. 
it does. I just don't. It doesn't call out to me. Maybe other folks have have seen it and they can tell us how it is. But I also understand that like some releases of it didn't even have the Crypt Keeper sequences on it. They released it as its own thing, and then other versions they put the Crypt Keeper back on. But it's also not really top shelf Crypt Keeper puppetry going on. So mm-hmm. it just sounds. It sounds like it would be sad to watch. I'd rather stick with Demon Knight and like the really great Tales from the Crypt episodes. Okay. Now, um, in turn, we've already talked a good bit here about the monsters and so forth. I guess it is worth noting that we do have holy relics that are at least alleged to contain the blood of Christ. (laughs) I was looking around a little bit. There are a couple of relics of the holy blood. Um, There's one in the Basilica of uh, St. Andrea. There's one uh, that at least was at some point in uh, Westminster in England. There's the relic of the precious blood in uh, Weingarten Abbey in Germany. Uh, so th- the idea of this key containing the blood is it, it does seem to be based on actual uh, uh, holy relics that allegedly contain holy blood. Yeah, I think also this ties into the to the Grail legend, like the idea that uh, at the death of Christ, that Joseph of Arimathea held a Grail that caught the the blood of Jesus dripping from the cross, and that somehow later he brought with him like containers of this blood to other places. I think like the, that's part of the, the local Glastonbury legend in Britain. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if any of these have actually been used against demons though, uh, but, but perhaps, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Uh, man, there's so much they could have done with the sequel though. You know, they could have had a thing where, all right, she's on the run as always. Uh, mm-hmm. The demons are after, but then where does she wind up? A genetics laboratory. What do they want to do? They want to use the precious blood in the in the key. They want to try and clone Jesus or something, and then but that it, becomes a whole plot element. But then he'd be a mutant because he'd be like part Jesus, but then also part William Sadler and part <laughs> Jada Pinkett. William Sadler is Jesus Christ in Demon Knight Two. <laughs> There's still time. There's still time. Ernest Dickerson, if you're listening, please make it. I will watch it. I will I, I will take all my friends to see it. I will as well. All right. Well, um, before we close out, I just want to, yeah, I'll mention again that you can rent or buy this one digitally most places these days, but that 2015 Blu-ray release from Shout Factory, Scream Factory import uh, is really slick and it's loaded with cool content. So if you're a Demon Knight fan, uh, that's worth picking up. <laughs> if you're a Demon. Yeah, we rented our copy from Videodrome, the uh, the last video store here in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you live in Atlanta, uh, go check out Videodrome. It's great. And if you don't, look them up online because you can buy some of their cool merch. Oh, yeah. They got great T-shirts and stuff. Oh, I was going to say that the T-shirt I'm wearing right now is one of theirs. It's not, but it could be. It's of their style. Oh, oh, oh I see it. You, it says Herzog, and then it has the Danzig logo. Mm-hmm. Nice. Rachel got me this one. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, anything else we need to say about Demon Knight before we uh, we close the, the, the crypt on this one? Uh, I think that wraps it up, but I'd just say again, great fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Do you have do you have memories of seeing this when it came out uh, or discovering it later on? Uh, do you have particular episodes of Tales from the Crypt that were your favorite? Uh, we'd love to hear from you about that as well. Or just any of the other elements in this, uh, be it Holy Blood or Really Cool Demons. Uh, it's all on the table. Dick Miller movies that we should add to the list. Let us know. <laughs> 
In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, also, I try to put up a blog post about the Weird House uh, series at samutamusic.com. That's S-E-M-U-T-A music.com. It's just my own personal blog. We don't have anywhere else to put blog-type content these days, so I'm just slapping it up over there. Long may you slap. Blogging and slapping. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 